morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Thank you. I'm glad to see you all today. Just a quick note before we get started. The Women of St. Michael Luncheon, number two for the year, follows this study. And so, as typical, we will end a little early, about 11.15, so that those of you who are planning to go to the luncheon are able to get down there, check in, get your name tags, and all that good stuff. So we'll be doing study for about 45 minutes today. And today we've got two-part lesson. The first is the official son, the healing of the official son, and the second is the, he the healing of the paralytic. So we get two more of Jesus. Jesus' signs today in that book of signs. Uh, we will speak for a minute about the November 1st um, conversation around Israel and Palestine um, before we jump in, but let's start with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask you to help us to put down all those things that are scary or worry us or cause us anxiety. Help us to make space for your spirit to fill us up so that as we study your word and the way that you have worked in the world, we can be inspired to be your hands and feet of love today and help to build your kingdom with every choice we make. Be with those we hold in our hearts, those who need your healing touch, especially those who are near the end of their lives. May our prayers and your presence uplift them. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start off by saying last week, we spent a few minutes talking about the history of Israel, Palestine, kind of what has created the situation that we're watching unfold right now in the news. We've decided that we want to offer something that is a bit more thorough. And so a week from today at 5 p.m., so November 1st at 5 p.m., Right here, we're going to do about an hour's lecture on that history, try to vet things a little bit more, um, talk a bit about the modern situation. We're not going to make it political. We just want to make sure everyone is as clear as possible on the history so that as we receive news every day, we're able to put some of that in context. We are not going to stream this. And so do come in person if you would like to participate. And if not, then we will pray for you. Um, <laughs> after, at 6 p.m., we will lead a prayer service, um, a prayer service for just Israel-Palestine, for conflict around the world. You know, we'll include just every bit of conflict. But right now, I think that's the primary one weighing on our hearts and minds. And so, again, 5 o'clock for the teaching, 6 o'clock for the prayer service, both here in the chapel. What's the date? November 1st. It's a week from today. Yes. Say again. In the chapel. All of that is going out in our newsletter. It's in my Friday letter. And so we're putting it out and writing where we can. Um, so do check that. And if for some reason you just forget, then email us and we'll make sure you have it. Bub, I believe, put it in her email this week. Um, if she didn't, she'll make sure she puts it in for next week so that she did. Thank you. Um, so if those of you get our RBS emails, you should have that in writing as well. We did have one follow-up question from last week's discussion in Israel-Palestine that I do think is helpful for us to just put into context because we actually got three different questions that all kind of circle the same idea. 
And that is essentially the idea of anti-Semitism. Um, one question in particular was someone had read that the sanctioning of a Jewish state after World War II, like the creation of Israel itself, was in a sense motivated by anti-Semitism, the desire to not have Jews in Europe and other places. That is a stretch. I want to note that anti-Semitism is very real, and we have obviously seen that flare over time for millennia. And so, you know, before Christianity, during Christianity, we see it in the modern world. We can never discount a the general sense of anti-Semitism that kind of floats under the surface. What I want to note is that Anti-Semitism falls for many as perhaps the primary example of the way in which being other is often dangerous in our world. Yes, anti-Semitism is real. It is not the only way in which people who are different are objectified and at risk. And so I do think it's important for those of us who are not Jewish to keep in mind that it's very easy for anti-Jewish sentiment to come to the surface very quickly. Um, I remember as a student, when I was first learning about World War II and the Holocaust as a, I think it was maybe a sophomore in high school, my teacher asked a very simple question. Did we think that the German people were bad? And it was a very provocative question because Germany and the great majority of Germans in the lead up to World War II and part of the Third Reich really began to live into and follow a design that was meant to eradicate people who were other. Now, principally, the single largest group eradicated in the Holocaust were Jewish people, but we all know that there were millions more who were not Jewish, who were simply other, whether it was sexuality or it was other ethnicities. And so the Holocaust just targeted everyone who wasn't Aryan. When they asked the question, were the German people bad people? I think what began in my mind that has continued to play out is that even good people can succumb to bad ideas over time. Small individual decisions and small individual nudges, whether it's political or social or structural, systemic, can begin to take a person who would otherwise be kind and inclusive and good to a place where their fear has been so stoked that they're willing to dehumanize other people because their fear is so strong. This is the danger that we have as Christians. I think that's the danger that we face just in the world writ large. As Christian people, and I, I think I say this so many times in many different ways, we're just called to love other people. And there really is no limit on that. And yet, because we prefer limits and because limits tend to make us feel more secure and security is what we think is the answer to fear, we can find ourselves living into ways and systems that actually exclude. Oh, thanks someone watching live while I'm talking. 
I will say, I have gotten used to this, um, but it is a strange thing to hear your voice in a recording. I mean, I remember that was the first thing that was the weirdest in seminary when we would watch our sermons back, is it wasn't about how I looked or what I said, it was how I sounded. And it was the strange, okay, this is just a aside. So, I remember as I started listening to myself talk, I thought, why am I emphasizing certain words and, you know, the cadence and the melody and whatever of my voice just seemed weird to me and I wasn't sure what in the world was that. Fast forward about five or six years, and one of my best friends from high school also became a preacher, and he planted a church in Boston, and he sent me a recording of his first sermon. He was like, hey, it's my first sermon. Listen. And within seconds, I realized he sounded just like me, with all the weirdnesses. So there's something about where we grew up that just is a strange cadence. So there it is. Um, Anyway, back to serious things. So by creating systems where we just almost passively or unintentionally live into excluding certain people in order to, we think, protect ourselves, that can slip very quickly into allowing us to hurt those people. Like it begins innocently with simple exclusion. And exclusion on its own may not necessarily be abusive or hurtful. I mean, it's hurtful, but that kind of exclusion can very easily become abuse and hurt and objectification and more. As Christians, that is perhaps the greatest challenge that we have in our discipleship, is to constantly remind ourselves that we are meant to love. And love means include. And inclusion means risk. And risk is part of discipleship. There is no way to do Christianity perfectly safely. That's it. Because what we do is we put ourselves out there, we expose ourselves in such a way that yes, we can be hurt. Look at Jesus, literally killed because he loved. And so if we can't see that kind of risk as being a major component of discipleship, we've not quite committed ourselves enough yet. And that's not judgment. It's really more invitation. It's more an invitation to lean in a bit more to what Jesus is calling us into. And that's what we get to do together. None of us are perfect. We all have ways to go. But together, we can all look at each other within our imperfections and perhaps take steps toward a more universally loving way of being together. And I think that that's really important for our own discipleship. So that being said, anti-Semitism, along with many other ways of, of objectifying and hurting groups that can be othered to us, is really present. And we should always try to question ourselves as objectively as possible around whether we participate or are even complicit in systems that support that. You know, in our tradition as Episcopalians, in our confession every Sunday, where we are actually confessing our sinfulness, our mistakes, we are asking to be forgiven, we always ask to be forgiven for what we do and what we did not do. That's really important because it is not enough for us to simply not hurt people. If we are also not 
part of what helps people not be hurt, I think we're missing a component of what it means to be Christian. And so that's enough for today. We'll say more. Yes. Should, should we differentiate between Semitism and Zionism? Should we differentiate between anti-Semitism and Zionism? It's a great question. I will tell you that there are many Jewish thinkers and writers that do. I am relatively careful. I am a particular person and I really cannot be a different person. And so part of what I think all of us get to do is increase our self-awareness. Who are we? Where do we come from? What's our family history or our system or our culture or our whatever? We have to know that to understand who we are and who we are not. And so whenever there's a situation where a question like this comes up, I'm very clear I am not Jewish. And so I do think I have to take the lead from my Jewish brothers and sisters who think about this both critically and also from their perspective. It is an issue that is personal to them very much. You know, it's personal to me in kind of the global sense of we're meant to love our neighbors. But because I am not, and when I say I'm not Jewish, like in my family, there is no, there is no kind of cultural, genetic family. We, we have no knowledge of any of it in my family on either side. And so for me, it's very theoretical in the sense of like, I'm meant to love my neighbor. So I try to learn from Jewish thinkers. And we obviously have a lot of Jewish thinkers who believe in a Zionist way of being where God, and it just, I mean, it goes way back to Abraham. God promised the land. And so if God promised the land, then we should do whatever we can to be on the land God promised. There are many other Jewish thinkers who I would say are at least modern, if not postmodern, who are in a sense taking a broader view that might be a little bit more, I hate to say Western, that's not really it. What it, what it sounds to me when I read them is that what they're really saying is that God's promise really wasn't yoked to dirt, that God's promise is much bigger than that. Not that land doesn't matter, but that we can't actually put land over the idea of the promise and the relationship that is born out of the promise. And so I do think differentiating Zionists would wish us not to differentiate. I think that people who are not Zionist are very comfortable differentiating because I think for them, anti-Semitism did not begin with the creation of Israel. That's something we have to be super clear about. But anti-Semitism has been redefined over time to be yoked to Zionism. And so I do think that's a modern concern for us to try and wrestle with the idea of the Jewish people need to be in the land promised by God and whether or not the Jewish people have real reason to fear others separate from Israel. 
I do think that is true, but I also think that is true insofar as any vulnerable minority group has reason to be afraid in the world. And fear should not control our actions. But that doesn't mean fear and risk isn't real. And so part of what we do is we try to protect people. But we, when we have the opportunity to protect, are called to protect all people. And so it cannot, we cannot protect some people at the risk of other people. That's where things get complicated. How can we, as Christians, love the lost when in their doctrine it says annihilate the Jews? <clears throat> How can we love Hamas? And, and the brutalness. Yeah, well, brutality is certainly inexcusable. And so terrorism, inexcusable. And all I know is what Jesus says. So love is not like, and love does not excuse bad behavior. So holding someone accountable to Brutality does not mean we don't love them, but there is a point at which accountability can cross a line and we are simply vengeful. And so that's the moral balance that we strike between accountability, justice, and something that transitions from justice to just being spiteful and vengeful. And it's a moving target. It is a sliding scale. There is no clear right or wrong. That's part of what discipleship is really about, is constantly questioning whether we're doing the best we can do. And so when we're faced with a humanitarian crisis in Gaza and a governmental organization that does not represent most of the civilians there, that is a terror organization, how do we manage trying to protect the innocent while also trying to hold the the ones causing the brutality accountable. It's a balance. And love is not like. I mean, that's really what I want us to know. We can, we can love people, which to me is fundamentally recognizing their humanity and also not like them. I mean, I'm super grateful that Jesus didn't tell us to like our neighbors. Um, because I would, I would struggle. Um, So you're saying you can't think of another doctrine where a certain group wishes to wipe out another group? Yes, and there are plenty of those. So we can do some historical digging and have that conversation apart from Bible study. So yeah, anti-Semitism may be the best known, but it is not the only one. Okay, so good. Let's keep going. Um, we'll do more of that next Wednesday. Okay. As we pivoted to John, we did get a question about signs. And 
if I could talk just a little bit more about the signs. We know that in John, there are these two big sections. You've got kind of section one, which is the book of signs. And the way that the author of John structured the book is such that there are a series of seven signs that are meant to point to the truth, the reality of who Jesus is, the word made flesh. This is the argument that the gospel writer is putting forward. Signs are simply miracles, but they're better than miracles because they're really supposed to point toward whatever it is the miracle is doing. And so in that way, the gospel of John never just has a miracle. It's always a miracle that within context points to something very theologically significant about the identity of God through the identity of Jesus. And so we'll see that today, both in both sections. And so let's just differentiate that a sign is a miracle that means more than the simple action it takes. That's probably good enough. So we've got two sections today. The first is the healing of the official son, and the second is the healing of the paralytic. So let's jump in. We are in chapter four, and we're gonna start with verse 43. This is the second sign in John's gospel. And at first, the story seems relatively simple, but it's really anchored in a sign that is meant to point to something very profound. And so chapter four, verse 43. When the two days were over, Jesus went from that place to Galilee for Jesus himself to testify that a prophet has no honor in the prophet's own country. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him since they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the festival, where they too had gone to the festival. So let's pause just to set this up. Galilee is a big region. And so if you think of Israel as kind of the long, tall country, Galilee is essentially the top, I don't know, quarter-ish of the country, mostly. It's not the entire top quarter, but it encompasses Nazareth, where Jesus is from, and Cana, Nazareth's little sister city, and it goes all the way over to the Sea of Galilee or the Lake Gennesaret. So that whole region is called Galilee. It's a little confusing here because the gospel writer seems to imply that Jesus isn't accepted in his home region, and then Jesus goes to his home region. <laughs> okay, so... Part of what is being set up here then as a sign is that Jesus is going into a place where he's already said he's not accepted. So a close reading would ask the question, what does not accepted mean? Because something about what Jesus is doing is not quite connecting to every person, in particular the people who know him. In particular, these would be the Jewish people. Now, just remember historical context. Rome runs this region. And so there are Romans, there are non-Jews, and there are Jews. So you've got Romans, Gentiles, and Jews all kind of mixed up. And so when we get to the official, we're really talking about a Roman official, probably. And so what the gospel writer is doing is holding up Jesus's hometown people. These would be the good Jews who live in Galilee against the non-Jews, in particular the Romans. So if you think of the historical context, bringing up an official is the worst thing you can do to compare to a Jew. It'd be better if it were just 
some random non-Jew. But to bring in an official, like the imperial overlords person, that makes it even worse. As Jesus returns to Cana, where he performed his first sign, he's obviously a little trepidatious. He knows he's not really accepted, and so now we're going to lean into what kind of acceptance we're really talking about. The dynamic of this idea, whether someone believes in Jesus because they've seen a miracle or a sign, or that someone believes in Jesus because they believe that in his presence is really what is being held up here. So do we believe in Jesus, or do these people believe in Jesus because they've seen a sign? Or do they believe in Jesus because they believe his word? And by word, we mean the big idea of this word made flesh. That's the constant theme in John's gospel. Consider how we think of God's presence. And so I was playing through this in my mind. When we think of God's presence and vis-a-vis God's goodness, it's often in good situations. So we tend to tie the reality and power and love of God to some physical manifestation in the world. And so you think of things like, I'm healed of my cancer, God is good. Or my child gets an award or gets a good job or marries a good person, God is good. Or I'm taking a great vacation and I'm eating good food and I'm drinking good wine, God is good. In all of those instances, it's very easy for us to say God is good. And when I've lost my job, God is good. And when my child struggles with depression and addiction, God is good. And when a tornado destroys my home, God is good. And when I'm diagnosed with a terminal illness, God is good. That's the challenge. God is not only good when we get what we want. God is not only good when we are safe. God's not only good when we feel good. Because God's goodness is not based on us. There is an old saying in many churches where the pastor will say, God is good, and the people will always say, all the time. And then, all the time, God is good. It's this mantra to remind us that God's goodness is completely separate from however we feel. That is a challenge for us. It's a real challenge for people who have always been pretty comfortable. For people who have always lived in the majority, always had advantages, always had security and comfort and opportunity and success and health, God being good all the time, that feels like a challenge. For people who understand struggle and pain and depression and hurt and illness, God being good all the time becomes where they anchor their hope. But for those of us who try very hard to ignore all the bad things, and we can most of the time, because most of the time, things are good. God being good all the time, that's really hard. Part of what we do here in Bible study is we can open ourselves up to these complex ideas and really spend time working out how we feel and what we think about these fundamental ideas so that when bad things happen, we don't either ignore them or we don't somehow yoke God's goodness to those bad experiences. 
That's our challenge. Right now, we're all sitting in the pews. It doesn't mean nothing bad is happening in our lives, but nothing bad enough is happening to keep us from being here today. And so we can kind of wrestle and turn over this idea of God's goodness all the time so that when the really bad things happen, when those bad crises hit, we have done our best to form ourselves to know that even in the bad stuff, God is good. And we can say to ourselves, in the pain, God is good. And we anchor ourselves and our hopefulness, our entire identity, in God's goodness. That is really the kind of sign that is about to be performed right here. Let's keep reading. Verse 46. Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my little boy dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. As he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover. And they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. So before we go, just a quick note, this is the second and only other time the gospel writer says the number of the sign. So he told us the first one. He tells us the second one. As we go on three through seven, it's just on us to keep counting. So here's the issue here with this healing. The royal official approaches Jesus in the way Jesus feared people would approach him. And he says, come down and heal my son. So this official has heard of Jesus. He knows Jesus can do some stuff. And he wants Jesus to come do that good stuff for him. And so he says, come with me. Because obviously for Jesus to do the magic, he's got to be there. And so Jesus then pushes on him and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, that was not just for the official. That was for everybody listening to Jesus, because what Jesus is really doing is he's making everyone aware that what he's doing means a lot more than the actual act of the healing. And so he's challenging the entire group, not just the official, and the official pushes back and he says, if you would just come with me, I know my son will live. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. And in that moment, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he started going home. He did not ask Jesus to come. He heard Jesus's word and he believed that was enough. That is really where this sign points. This sign of the healing, good. The healing is great, miracle. But what is really happening in that miracle is that Jesus is pointing to what we are all challenged to do. And that is believe without proof. This man believed, and he just left with his belief. And what Jesus then says is, look, that's what I'm talking about. All of you may need me to do some magic, but what I really want from you 
is for you to believe without that proof. That's our challenge. And as we go through the gospel, they, that will be reiterated again and again and again. All right, any questions about that? Because I want to make sure we get to the paralytic as well. All right, so we're going to go to the next one. Healing of the paralytic. This is chapter five. What I want to do is just set the context here physically. We are back in Jerusalem. So Jesus had gone up to Galilee, now he's come back to Jerusalem. Most of the Gospel of John happens in Jerusalem, which is different because most of the synoptic Gospels happen outside of Jerusalem. And so John kind of pivots. We are back in Jerusalem. For those of you who have been to Jerusalem or seen maps, you know the old city of Jerusalem looks loosely like a kind of a wonky square. At this point in time, when Jesus was alive, the old city of Jerusalem looked a bit more like a cone. If you think of like an ice cream cone, how that works, it's a bit more conical in its shape. So the current walls of the old city did not exist mostly when Jesus was alive. There were still gates in the walls. And we find out here that Jesus was near the sheep gate by the pool of Bethesda. So just a couple of quick notes. If you imagine the old city of Jerusalem, you know that kind of on the east side, there's the Temple Mount. At this point in time, the second temple would have been on the Temple Mount. Today, that's where we see the Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque. Just north of the Temple Mount is a big reservoir. So as cities did, they built reservoirs to siphon off water from springs and rivers to be able to provide water to the city. It is physically higher up in the city because the reservoir needs to be as high as possible so that the water goes downhill to be able to feed all of the homes. That particular reservoir, Bethesda, was built specifically to benefit the temple because the temple just needed water. You needed ritual cleansing baths. You needed to be able to water animals. You needed to be able to provide plumbing in very simple ways. And so that Bethesda pool... Bethesda means house of mercy, was traditionally a healing site. At least back to the 8th century BCE, that particular pool was used for healing or believed that it would be healing. So you had Greek mythology about this pool that transferred to the Roman mythology that then transferred to the Jewish mythology where this particular spot was perceived of to be a place where ill people could be healed. So let's start reading, and then we'll unpack a bit more. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Pause real fast. In John's Gospel, you hear a lot of Jesus goes up and Jesus comes down. That references the topography of Israel. So Jerusalem was placed where it was because it is a highly elevated spot in Israel. And so when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, he is physically going uphill most of the way. When Jesus goes down to Galilee, it's reverse. He is mostly going downhill. So that's just to note. Verse 2. Now in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, there was a pool called in Hebrew Bethsatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, 
Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Let's talk just about the history of this moment. In this pool there was a belief that angels stirred the water. A very close reader may notice you've got a verse missing. Did you notice that? Anyone want to read me verse 4? Shh! Stop with your study Bible. Okay, yes. Unless you have a study Bible, you don't have a verse 4. So, verse 4 traditionally said, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well for whatever disease that person had. That verse was in very old translations, like the King James Version, for example. So if any of you got the King James in front of you, you do have verse 4. But if you've got the NIV or the NRSV or any modern translation, a couple hundred years ago, we really figured out that the oldest translations of the Gospel of John did not have that verse in it. It was simply added to give context to verse number 7 where it says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Because here's what the people thought. They thought that here's a pool, and an angel would just randomly, whenever, un unannounced, stir the water. So whenever the water would kind of start to foam or stir or something, the first person to get into the water got healed. That was the story. This man has been there for 38 years. And so the interesting thing about this story is the porticos are filled with, as they described, invalids, people who were ill in many different ways. And some of these people have been there for 38 years or more. So odds are the pool doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, anyone reading this story would think, like... It's not working. That's a long time. And so into that moment steps Jesus. And just in a matter of minutes, Jesus does what the pool has not done for decades for this man. This person is healed on the spot. And what is super problematic for many Christians in their theology is what the man does not do. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? Does the man say yes? Nope. Does the man say he believes? Nope. The man simply says, nobody's here to do anything for me. And Jesus says, get up and take your mat. Ooh, that's kind of a problem for some of our Christian friends who say there is a litmus test to whether or not Jesus loves you or whether Jesus will heal you or save you. Here we have this moment where Jesus comes to the man and says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to get up and walk again? And Jesus does not need this man to say anything. Jesus simply heals. 
This same kind of thing happens multiple times in the New Testament, and people, Christian, classic Christian theology does not like these moments. Because the Christian church is kind of based on, you've got to say the right stuff in the right way for the right reasons, or else none of it works. It's too much about magic. Where what Jesus offers here and in many other moments is not always based on what the people do or say. We cannot simply reject these stories wholesale because somehow the gospel writers were wrong. We have to actually wrestle with what is happening in these stories, the way they were written, to try and learn something more complex about what Jesus is trying to do. And for the gospel writer, the complexity comes with, it's not about the healing. It's about the sign that is pointing towards something better. So for us, we need to actually lean into what we do in the real world when times get hard. We have to actually lean into when we are like the man at the pool. Can we do something to understand that God is doing his best to get at us? I jokingly said the pool's not working, but I meant that to be challenging for us because every one of us, me included, can yoke our hope on the world because someone said something would help. When the world does not give us what we truly need, every one of us has that in our own way. It could be security, it could be comfort, it could be money, it could be success, it could be medication, it could be whatever. There are ways in which our world can be helpful, but the world is never going to meet the deepest, most profound need we have. Jesus does that. What we see in this story is when we commit ourselves too much to the world, when we commit ourselves and our pain and our brokenness too much to a world that promises some kind of healing, but never actually delivers, we can find ourselves stuck. And Jesus comes to this man who has committed 38 years of his life trying to get healing from a pool that never delivers. And Jesus just walks in and goes, pick up your mat. That's the power that God promises us. And doesn't mean that we're not, we're anti-intellectual. What it means is there is a deep healing that all of us need. And there's a deep healing that God is trying to get through to us. And in our frailty and in our imperfection, we will never be the ones who actually convince God to heal us. God doesn't need our convincing. God is ready and willing right now to really heal us. And regardless of how we perceive that healing, God is good all the time. And we're going to pause there and we'll pick up chapter five next week. I'll see you all soon.